This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. episode 25 of the Mad, Bad and Damn Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film Introduction to Cool and Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Damn Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, from the Dex DVD Hell, and tonight's theme is Let's Go to the Mall, as we look at two very different movies set around every teenager's favourite hangout, as we look at Ke- Morats, Kevin Smith's underrated follow-up to Clerks, as well as battling zombies in Wilson Yip's Biozombie. But joining me in the studio this evening is uh, my guest is not only a member of your face, but a regular contributor to Lair of the Unwanted podcast, uh, which he co-hosts with my previous guest. But it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening, Nolan. Hello, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for obviously coming on this evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dig into these uh, these movies. Yeah, um, before we obviously do that, just obviously so we can learn a bit more about yourself, obviously this being your first appearance on the show. Um, first of all, for people not familiar with your site, uh, your face, what's the site about? Okay, uh, that is, I am Nolan and I write for Your Face, which you could find at www.yourfaceisa.com. Uh, it is a collaboration between myself, uh, Jason Soto, who's uh, my co-host at The Lair of the Unwanted, and I believe your previous guest, yep. and uh, Nick Job. Um, we were uh, the three of us are longtime members of the large association of uh, movie bloggers, uh, the Lamb. Um, and Jason's so old school. I think his Lamb number was like number five or something like that. <laughs> Whereas I'm, you know, only relatively old at like number 380. But um, we had separate blogs covering uh, somewhat different kinds of movies. Jason was very kind of horror oriented and B movies and stuff. I focused more on just bad movies and straight to rental kind of uh, fare. And, And Nick kind of was kind of a catch-all. He'd do things in the theater and then do things, you know, cartoons from his childhood. We just got it in our heads to combine forces like a three-limbed, like, Voltron of movie blogging, but then we we could start fighting over who would be the head of Voltron. So we're just, you know, it's the three of us together, and we kind of cover... We just... It's a very personality-based kind of uh, movie blog, so... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, as we mentioned on the previous episode, the site itself is not just a mainstream blog or sort of like a bad movie blog or a B-movie blog. You somehow managed to walk that sort of fine line between so you're sort of many things to many genres, which it, is really it, interesting to see. It is, and it makes it, it makes it a nice potpourri of stuff. On any given week, we've had weeks where, you know, the, the last three reviews were like... Um, a Godzilla movie 
a 90s Disney film and, you know, some Z-grade schlock horror film, you know, just boop, boop, boop. (laughs) So um, it it does keep it very interesting. And and we have a lot of fun, too. We challenge each other to movies, so we have recurring challenges. Um, We'll occasionally do joint reviews, which um, almost always are a nightmare, not because it's uh, nightmarish to, to collaborate with my you know, my site mates on, on a movie, but we always really just kind of punish each other with our movie selections. So, uh, last one we did was the Holy mountain to give you an idea. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have, a yes, yeah, so we have a lot of fun on, on the site. So, okay. I have to obviously just ask just the fact you brought up Holy mountain, which you'll see Jowalski. Have you seen, uh, the documentary Jowalski's June yet? No, and I'm really curious about it, especially since I now that I've seen one of his films, I, I hate to admit it, but that was the first time I had seen one of his films. Mm-hmm. I had heard forever about uh, um, about him and, and his kind of films, but, um, you know, always had other things come up, like, you know, those Godzilla movies aren't going to review themselves, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's sometimes <laughs> easier to look at someone like Godzilla rather than, like, tackle someone like Jarosky. Um, yes. When you're looking like a midnight movie like El Topo, and it's like a surrealist western. Um, obviously, when we come to his vision for June, which I think ran between anywhere between eight to twelve hours, and had Salvador Dali as the emperor of the galaxy. And I mean, this is really just touching the surface. When you see the documentary and you see his grandiose ideas, um, and the fact he's only he's become sort of a mentor for. Uh, uh, Nicholas Wending Rafen, who did Drive and Only God Forgives, he sort of become a mentor to him for some bizarre reason. But I would say, <laughs> since he has took on that mental role, he started producing some of his best work, as I said, with the aforementioned Drive and uh, Only God Forgives, and to an extent, Bronson, which was sort of just before they start their collaborations together. But it's always interesting to see what people make of his, his work, because there are people there like Lynch, who just absolutely adore his work, and see great things and there's sort of layman's like myself who watch it and get confused and think maybe I'll just write about something else. That that is true. Um and certainly my experience with Holy Mountain was like all of those things kind of alternating about every twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so like I'd go through twenty minutes where I'm like, please kill me now and then suddenly I'd be like, you know, this is actually kind of interesting and then then I'd go back to wanting to stick my head in an oven, you know. I mean, I have to obviously ask, when you encounter films like Holy Mountain, do you, have you found those sort of films that sort of defy the ability to sort of review them in any sort of logical way? You know, I always, that's, that actually ends up being kind of the fun part of writing the review, is, in my mind, is like, how am I going to approach this thing? Mm. You know? Um, because certainly, like, doing some kind of narrative recap is is not very productive i mean the the nature of the joint reviews that we do tend to be almost like recaps so so in that instance for holy mountain that that makes it really difficult but to take something where it narratively is messy uh like rubber comes to mind have you seen that yes the uh killer tiger movie with the killer tiger yeah you know like if you're spending a lot of time you know highlighting the 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 main points of the plot i think you're kind of missing the the bigger picture of 
you know. So then it becomes like, how do I want to approach? Like, what's my entry into into writing about this this film? And then just as a as a writing exercise, that's that's some of the the most fun stuff. Um, you know, those kind of films or, or a film like Southland Tales gets really like, all right, how am I going to tackle this thing? You know. Yeah, Southland Tales is. I think it's up there with Jay, obviously our glorious leader of the Lamcast. Um, I think when I post that to Movie of the Month, I think it came away as probably one of his least favorite movies of the month I've, they've ever done. Um, well, it's certainly a polarizing film. I get that. <laughs> yeah, I remember just obviously going into that Lam, that Lamcast and being faced with the prospect of, I think, three people who hated this movie and one other person who actually agreed with me that it was actually a good movie so it was kind of like going into it and reliving the last scene in casino where you suddenly find yourself as joe pesci in the uh cornfield being beaten up by three other guys and <laughs> buried alive oh it wasn't quite that bad i remember listening to that episode <laughs> if anything else you you acquitted yourself quite well i thought <laughs> and, and maybe maybe because i while i wouldn't i would i would be hesitant to call it a great movie or a good movie like I admired that movie. Mm. Um, I thought that movie had an ambition that you don't see often at all. Oh, I've... so even when it fell on its face, which it did plenty of times, <laughs> um, I could admire like what it was trying to do and the the scope it was trying to embrace and such. So. Yeah, I just I just personally, when it comes to Southland Tales, it's just like this ride you take. You don't sort of question where you're going or how you're going to get there. You just sort of go on this journey and you, you sit, enjoy the sights and the sounds of things like, like Justin Timberlake's war veteran miming to the killers, all the things I've done, or you see the rock, like say lines, like uh, I'm a pimp and pimps don't kill themselves. Or just even more simple things like Christopher Lambert turn up as like an arms dealer who deals out of an ice cream truck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these yeah, this, great this stuff. are things to take, but I mean, this is why I love Richard Kelly. I think he's probably one of the most underrated directors currently working. Um, he's still trying to get his full film out there. He, I constantly hear bits and pieces about it, but you have to sort of consider when you obviously got people like M. Night Shyamalan, who's producing trash like every year or so, and Richard Kelly's there, like a true visionary of filmmaking, and he's there struggling to get his full film made. You have to kind of wonder what's going on really in the studio system. Uh, it's it's a they're allergic to to risk. I think that's mm. obvious, and that's the type of thing. I'm going to hop from one big topic to another that drives me nuts whenever whenever I see and you see these come out in rashes. You'll see someone do a, a like a, a rant about how like everything's a remake, nothing's original, wham 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 wham. <laughs> Everything sucks compared to how it was when I was a kid, right? Yeah. Kind of forgetting the fact that, well, there were plenty of remakes and such when we were kids, you know, and, and I'm saying that with no idea of how old you are, you know, like, but like, you know, like however old we were, there's, you know, remakes are like they predate movies. So what it comes down to is the studios, you know, for the studios, this isn't entertainment to them. This is this is a money making venture. This is business, and you they are it's a it's a basically a high profile investment 
You know, yeah. it's it's no different than playing the stock market, and they want to m- minimize the risk as much as they can. And how do you do that? Well, you you bank on established brands that have built-in followings, and you know, uh, all sorts of tie-ins, and that's and that's how you do it. So, um, yeah, I think that's 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 the main thrust of the the studio yeah. system these days. I feel that the problem they have with the studio system is that back in the sort of glory days of uh, filmmaking, we look at sort of like 99 through to sort of the early 2000, you'd have studios and they'd do like their tempo picture and then they use the money that they made from that and they're investing like three or four more risky pictures and you had like all their independents or wings like Fox 2000 appearing, uh, like spotlight pictures and they would have these little offshoot companies uh, within themselves that would do these little indie pictures and you have things like being John Malkovich or Fight Club. Uh, just sort of looking at my shelf here and just trying to get some more inspiration here. Um, you'd have movies like Spun come out or Thank You for Smoking. And you would have these little uh, independent pictures and it would keep things interesting. Now we seem to be in the period where we just seem to be having the tempo picture or whatever's hot at the moment, which currently seems to be comic book movies. Personally for myself, I'm getting to the sort of stage where I'm kind of feeling a bit bored of comic book movies. I don't know about yourself. Are you still in there with the whole comic book movie, John? I'm, I'm a giant toddler. Yeah, I'll still go. Okay. <laughs> I mean, again, this is something that's come out of Comic-Con. We've obviously had DC doing their two big tempos, uh, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Suicide Squad. Now, for myself, this again is doing what Guardians of the Galaxy did, and it's rejuvenizing my interest in the comic book movies because here they are they're doing something dark they're doing something different than what marvel's doing which is very sort of more day glow it's more sort of friendly and um it seems to be something very different than what dc kind of seem to be doing so i mean did you see either the two trailers coming out of comic-con this weekend i i did and um and maybe it's my own biasness towards you know one brand over the other like they do very little for me. Okay. The, the the really oppressively dark grittiness. Like, I, I haven't seen Man of Steel. I have no interest. And it's a combination of not really caring for the character, because when you're perfect and everything and mm. you can do everything, like, it's just, I'm bored, you know? Yeah. Um, And then just this oppressive, like, so serious and such that, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know um so it's it's hard for me to get all excited even something like suicide squad which in theory sh- should be a really interesting premise i on some level how is this different than like a really serious version of the expendables like it's yeah they're villains but at the end of the day they're doing the badass slow-mo walk all armed up and mm. you know I think Suicide Squad is the one I'm most interested in. Um, obviously, I should highlight, well, as we're recording this, this is obviously in the 14th of July, so we're just coming off the Comic-Con weekends because this show is going to be probably airing in about August, so you put this into going, why the hell are we still talking about Comic-Con? That was like months ago. Um, so this is the reason we are doing it, is current as we're recording this. So, But when it, obviously the Suicide Squad trail, I mean, I loved Joker in the old panda costume. I thought that was very cool. Um, and I like the idea of what Suicide Squad is. Man of Steel, I'm kind of biased because I'm a big Zack Snyder fan, and 
I understand what you're saying with Superman. He is a Boy Scout sort of character, uh, the same as Captain America, but these are entry-level superheroes. These are the ones that bring you into getting into comic books because these are characters that are safe and they're not morally complex. And from there, once you sort of get used to the comic books, you obviously move on to darker characters. You move on to, like, Batman or Punisher if you're really dark, uh, yeah. <laughs> depending on what you, what you like. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, it, it makes sense to me. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm just, it doesn't necessarily, yeah. uh, not my brand of gin, I guess. I don't That's know. <laughs> I have to obviously I, uh, say, cause obviously the statement that was released today, the head of marketing for Warner Brothers Studio, basically chastising the fact that the Suicide Squad trailer was only meant for the Comic-Con fans. It wasn't meant for general consumption. Um, and the fact that they feel they had to release this trailer because of the fact it was being pirated and put out there on the internet in this lesser form. For myself, it felt like Warner Bros. were basically throwing the toys out the pram by releasing this statement. They could have done something a little more laid back, a little gone, okay, it's out there, enjoy this trailer, rather than just make this big deal about the fact it had been leaked. I mean, do you have any thoughts and obviously on how trailers have been released for Comic-Con? The fact that we have had this delay compared to previous years where they've appeared sort of two hours after they've had their premiere and at the moment it seems like very few trailers are actually coming out out of uh, Comic-Con that were shown there exclusively. Yeah, I'm actually a bit taken aback. I hadn't heard that statement from from Warner Brothers. I'm a little stunned. I kind of feel like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> you know, I get the idea of them premiering it at at Comic-Con and then releasing it the next day or at the end of the weekend or something like that, you know. Um, I mean... But what, what were they... What did they think was going to... <laughs> Like, of course, there was, someone was going to record yeah. it, you know? I'm just going to read the statement. This is obviously the statement. This was produced by uh, Sue Crow. As I said, this was posted via Cinema Blend. Um, the statement basically goes that Warner Brothers Pictures and our anti-piracy team have worked tirelessly over the last 48 hours to contain the Suicide Squad footage that was pirated from Hall H on Saturday. We've been unable to achieve this goal. Today we released the same footage that has been illegally circulated on the web in the form it was created in a high quality with which it is tend to be enjoyed. We regret this decision as it was our intention to keep the footage a unique experience for the Comic-Con crowd. But we cannot continue to allow this film to be represented by the poor quality of pirated footage stolen from our presentation. Uh, that's the statement that they released today and which has obviously been doing the rounds on the, the film blogging circuit. It's been something that's I've had a bit of a discussion having it on the old Facebook page as well, just seeing what people thought out there, and most people felt that it could be handled better. Uh, Marvel, when it happens then with the Age of Ultron trailer, made that really great tweet of "Damn Hydra," and you know perhaps it would have been <laughs> nice to have seen Warner Brothers like take a lot hard approach and perhaps not issue such a brunt statement. Do you feel? Yeah, I. That's why I'm a little. And maybe this was their way of like, like trying to make a big stink about anti-piracy in general, yeah. and kind of a, and make a pirate a statement on piracy in general. Um, I just think it was yeah, it was very strangely handled, and I'm I'm kind of wondering what their original kind of marketing strategy was, like why yeah. you know. I mean, I do have to ask the question again. This is something that was one of my, my, my friends brought up and he was like well if you release a trailer um, the same time you release it in Comic Con and it 
bombs at Comic Con, then you kill your project. And I was like, well, why don't you just have the trailers on standby? You get your pop at Comic Con. Two hours later, launch it for the us, the rest of us who obviously don't have funds to attend Comic Con, or we obviously have like work commitments or family or you know not, the ability not to fly to Comic Con or whatever it may be. The reason we couldn't attend, and yeah. then you obviously kill any chance of pirates ruining it. You know your films going to be get the rights of reaction because you've obviously had the 75,000 uh, whatever it is for Comic-Con sort of test audience there so you know it's going to work or it's not um, and then go from there but obviously uh, they decided that they were going to go this kind of exclusive route which in the days of camera phones and many ways to sort of get it out I don't feel you can really do anymore do you think? No I, I think that's that's a really naive approach to take <laughs> Like, how can you how can you assume that nobody will will record this and pirate it, especially these days? You know, um, yeah, it's it's very strange to me. Yeah, there's I mean, there's this. It's and if, so hard if they're to... really and if they're really that worried about the trailer, then why are you showing it at all? Like, this you got to have a certain amount of confidence that, you know that it's going to, you know, that people are going to be excited about it. Mm. Actually, obviously, uh, I mean, I know, obviously, when we were discussing this prior to it, I mean, you said yourself you're not the biggest sort of uh, convention fan of the, the sort of films that are being shown here, but you obviously go off your own sort of instinct whether you want to see it or not, and you don't just obviously go and see it because it's another comic book movie, no, because it's another addition to the Marvel uh, sort of universe. I mean, what sort of films do you find yourself that you've returned to the most? Oh, that's a good question. Um, oh, is there any sort of like genre you sort of favor over others? Are you or? talking like in the theater or in general? Oh, just in general. Okay, in general, um, my favorite movies are the bad ones. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a reason like I specialize in, and I've been you know, covering these movies for, I don't know, a good eight years anyway, um, is like kind of the 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 ignored movies that and kind of that become either cult favorites or um or just are so bad they kind of circle around to being funny and good again um those are the ones that i i tend to seek out and i i really enjoy Mm. um you know and i sprinkle in you know actual good movies into my viewing just as a you know palate cleanser if anything else i guess (laughs) but yeah if i was to say what what do i come back to time it's, it's be the things I, I focus on most which is like cult films and just cheesy stuff you know yeah. um that kind of that kind of film i always love it when you get a director who's probably better known for like his oscar work uh if you look at someone like peter jackson everyone assumes that peter jackson just like stumbled out of the new zealand bush and did lord of the ring straight off yeah uh or if they're <laughs> not, a little more educated the, yeah uh, or if they're like, you know, a little more nerdy, they go, oh, he did the Frighteners first or something, or Heavenly Creatures. But I love the fact that Peter Jackson started off as a splatter and bad taste director. He did this, like, crescendo of three bad taste movies. He obviously did Bad Taste, um, Meet the Feebles, and Brain Dead, or as in the States is known, Dead Alive. Um, I mean, if you had any experience with Jackson's early films in your sort of bad taste sort of uh traps? I do, and actually, I'm not a huge fan of his early stuff, believe it or not. Um, I uh, I watched Meet the Feebles and found it almost unwatchable. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, Dead Alive, I liked, but I didn't. Um, I didn't love it the way that a lot of people love it. And I don't know. I don't know if it's maybe it's just something about the practical effects kind of skis me out a little. Mm-hmm. I have that same kind of reaction to a lot of trauma films, actually. If I'm being honest, like you know. You would think that I would be a little more accustomed to a lot of horror and stuff, and I guess not. But, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but you know, but then I enjoyed the Frighteners, which was like his first real stab at something more, I don't know, more studio-ish, I guess. Um, and I love the idea that that's that was his background, and those are mm. some of my favorite directors, or the ones who came from, you know these kind of like Z Z film <laughs> roots or whatever. And they have gone on to make, you know, Sam Raimi is the same kind of thing. I love that. You know, it's the evil dead guy. And then has gone on to, you know, do all this, you know, like high, you know, high profile award-winning stuff. Mm. Um, even, uh, even something more, re- more recently, the Russo brothers have been directing, like uh, they directed uh, Captain America, um, Winter Soldier and, and stuff. They started off doing episodes of Community, which is just this this really awesome meta uh, <laughs> sitcom, you know. <laughs> so I've yet to start Community. It's on. It's finally come onto Netflix here in the UK. Oh, excellent. Um, because in obviously in the states you have you have good Netflix. Here in the UK we have like bargain basement Netflix. <laughs> it's all like a lot of the films on there are like stuff you find at like uh, car washes in like the dollar bin. Oh boy, <laughs> which is either good or bad thing. It depends on your taste. But, um, well, yeah, and I would actually probably enjoy that. So, um. <laughs> but um, yeah, obviously, I just obviously you mentioned that you saw Meet the Feebles and you saw uh, Brain Dead there. Um, and you've not have you seen uh, Bad Taste? No, I haven't. In fact, and Jason's going to be mad at me. Um, usually, we talk about what we're going to cover on on the show oh we didn't even touch on that really so jason and i who jason soto uh we are the co-host of the layer of the unwanted which is a uh a podcast we've been doing it for i think we're into our sixth year or something ridiculous Mm. at this point uh we do a show twice a month and we cover a uh a bad film (laughs) is is generally every now and then a, a pretty good one sneaks through but it's almost by accident if it does um and we'll talk about what we want to cover, and, and like, I don't know, like seventy percent of the time, Jason's the one who recommends it, and I, and ninety nine percent of the time when he does, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. That's you know, that's fine. And I don't know if it was just the mood I was in on the day he hit me with it, but he asked, he asked like, oh, we should do, and I just blanked out on the bad taste. Bad taste. And I was like, you know, no. <laughs> I vetoed it. He was stunned. He's like, what? What do you mean? I'm like, yeah, I I don't have it in me to do that movie. Let's do something else. And I forget I forget what we did. It was um. I could probably look it up if I really wanted to. Something <laughs> bad taste is something something rather special. I mean, if only just to sort of like complete your cinematic sort of education. I mean, you can at least say by seeing it that you've seen a film where a sheep's blown up with a rocket launcher. Nice. Um, and you get to see a, a psychotic character called uh, Derek who falls off a cliff and has to strap his head up with a belt to stop the back of his head falling off. And uh, <laughs> if only, again, for the classic line, um, I'm, I'm Derek and Derek's don't run. 
Nice. And um, a man shooting a machine gun uh, by just making the noise. So it's really him. Is is the machine gun actually shooting bullets, or it is? But he's also going like da 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 along with it. I think no. The thing the first time he does it, he's saying it along with it, and then the second time, he's not even say, even firing the gun. He's just there making the noises. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I'll have to check it out. I, like sure. I said, I don't know if it was just the mood I was in. Mm. Um, I just, uh, or maybe I was was thinking of Meet the Feebles, and I was just like, I, I don't have it in me to do yeah, this. It's uh, it's always you never know which way to go with Ali Jackson, but uh, no, I'd I'd say Saint Brain Dead's his second best of that little splatter trilogy, but wow, okay, because uh, right. Brain Brain Dead sets the bar so high. I mean, Brain Dead is the reason there's no body humor in Shaun of the Dead, because he mm. just basically Jackson went and he did any possible body horror you could come up with, he does in that film. Um. Let's let's not forget he manages to top chainsaws with a petrol driven mower. Yes. So and that that was fantastic that sequence. So and uh, I just like to I like to describe Brain Dead the same way I describe Evil Dead. That it's just so funny and violent. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. And how many movies can you say that about? So. Well, Evil Dead, I guess. But. Yeah, Evil Dead, obviously. So. <laughs> Before obviously go on to uh, obviously our first film of this evening, I just want to obviously just you just obviously mentioned Evil Dead. How excited are you for uh, Ash versus Evil Dead? I'm optimistic. Okay. Like I'm optimistically excited. I you know it has the potential of falling on its face, but I think it'll be it'll be pretty fantastic. The 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 bit that I saw looked really like spot on, and uh, Bruce Campbell's always good. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm always happy to have more Bush Gardens. I'm more optimistic about this than if they did Evil Dead 4. So, I think I'm in the position where I don't mind going on like a series of short adventures. I just don't want to go on a long adventure with these characters. I'd rather see them do a, a number of small things rather than just like one big thing and it'd be disappointing. So. And this is is this a is this a mini series? Is this a, a special? I was I was a little uncertain well, of what. This is the this is the thing. They've been very vague on how many episodes we're getting. I'm going into it expecting a miniseries. Okay. So like maybe six, maybe 12 episodes that push. Um, and I'll be happy with that. I don't think it would be the sort of show I would want to see like 22 episodes of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Uh, anyone who wants to disagree with me, you know, complaints in the comments section below. But no, I've, I've, I feel they will work well as a miniseries. Uh, same way that Todd and the Book of Pure Evil worked great as a miniseries rather than a long series. So we'll, wait, we'll have to see, I guess. Absolutely. But obviously from one early sort of beginning, as you said, Sam Raimi had his Evil Dead, Peter Jackson had his Spider trilogy. Another director that we're going to discuss his early film for now is Kevin Smith. As we look now at More Rats, the follow-up to his critically acclaimed and breakout hit, Clerks, uh, which took the Sundance Festival by storm. And More Rats was to be his big follow-up. Unfortunately, when it was released, it flopped, and it eventually found its audience on video. And again, it's become the sort of standard for Kevin Smith's movies, the flop in the theaters, but he doesn't care because he'll make his money back when it has the DVD release. And this seems to have been true for his career. And More Rats, in later years, has now become sort of shown in the same sort of light that we view both Clerks and Dogma, um, and Chase Namie as being his key sort of works. 
the film itself following two slackers as they basically get into mischief for hanging out at the mall and it's a plot that features many random offshoots such as the quest of viewer magic uh, the picture in a magic eye uh, Jay and Silent Bob on their second appearance here managing to fail to dismantle the stage as well as a game show that goes horribly horribly wrong uh, just a few of the many delights contained within this one but opening thoughts on this one Nolan uh, what's your uh, sort of opening thoughts on Mallrats I always liked Mallrats um, I'd obviously seen it I, I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or as soon as it came out for, for rent, but um, I'd seen it a bunch of times. I owned it for a while and then um, spent a good part of the last week tearing my house apart, trying to find my copy of it and couldn't <laughs> find it, which was maddening. Um, you know, I, I, I always enjoyed it. I also knew that there were it was kind of flawed. So as I was looking forward to revisiting this in more of a, like, we're going to review this and critique it and, and hash into it kind of way, as opposed to just sitting back and, you know, eating popcorn or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm and, and watching, I'm, I, I enjoyed it. I think it is a prime piece of nineties nostalgia. Um, everything about it feels like the nineties for to mm. me, which makes sense because it came out in 1995, but, um, the styles, the music, the overall vibe of it just feels very even the the retro aspects of it where they tie in like the 70s game shows and the bossa nova music and stuff. It's very 19 it's very 90s. Um having said that, I am not at all surprised that it flopped in the theater. Um this is this is a movie and I think this is a one of these things where it's probably like career learning curve. I feel like you can you can feel the studio interference in this movie in a way that you you don't feel in any of of Kevin Smith's other films so strongly. Um and, and I should probably qualify that, yeah. <laughs> so, um there are there are there are scenes in the fi- in this film where it has the same energy and vibe as like clerks and and the dialogue too everyone talks about like kevin smith the director and i even when clerks came out talked about hey oh he wants to really do more directing and i was stunned because i always thought his strength was really the dialogue and the the type of conversations and the the kind of the momentum of them and, and how they kind of weave together and how they banter and there's a lot of that in this film and then which makes you go to another scene where it's so it's very stilted and the kind of humor that's in there is suddenly like almost aggressively juvenile. Um, so I'll give you examples uh, or dive headfirst into it. Like the, the opening scene where TS goes to pick up Claire Forlini to go off on their trip, you know, it's very kind of leaden and it's very like, T.S. is a dick. It's kind of an an asshole. I've noticed like his scenes with her, he's a he's a absolute piece of shit, you know. And I'm hoping that I can swear it. Well, yeah, we have, we have okay. explicit rating for reasons. So. Okay, cool. Um, and you know, in Claire Forlini's 
you know, her accents all over the place. Like you could, you almost wonder if this was like a, a completely reshot scene or maybe the very first scene they shot in the whole movie and they didn't know what they were making yet. Um, but then you, you go straight from that to the scene with, uh, with Brody and whatever Shannon Doherty's character's name is, you know, waking up at her place and their banter is so clerks yeah. and it works and it's there, you know, and there's humor there that, that absolutely it, it pops and it works in a way. But then you get like when you get to the topless, um, the topless fortune teller, you know, and it's a lot of like grabbing themselves and yeah, boobies, you know, like, and it just feels very <laughs> like, it feels very regressive. Like this is not, that's, so that's what I'm talking about. Like, mm-hmm. it feels like there's two clear, distinct voices trying to, kind of get control of mall rats one yeah. being kevin smith's and the other being whoever the studio made rewrite certain scenes <laughs> you know so uh, did you did you have that kind of experience or i, I mean the way i view view um mall rats is that when you look at kevin smith's career for the longest period he would seem like he'd do, he'd do like a smart movie so clerks and then he'd do the dumb movie so mall rats and then he'd go make the smart movie which would be chase navy and Obviously, Dogma kind of throws it off because of all the controversy surrounding Dogma. He sort of finally had a deal and a chance to make it because Dogma originally was going to be the second film. Oh, um, I but did not know that. Yeah, the uh, obviously various religious parties uh, saw it as being an attack on them, uh, despite the fact that Smith himself is Catholic, um, and it was all about what he learned, his perception of religion from what he learned from Sunday school. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember the controversy and um, and I remember thinking after seeing the movie like this was really smart and this was clearly coming from a place of under like understanding the religions and loving it for its better, you know, it's good and it's bad, you mm-hmm. know, Um I didn't know that this is what he wanted to do as his second project. though. Yeah. Um, I mean, as I say, it turned up as been the fourth and it wasn't obviously done through Miramax, it was done through the UK production house film four productions uh, during their original run before they closed down uh, after Death to Smoochie. Uh, they've since reopened and uh, continued to do do the release and produce films. As I said, it was, you only have to like look at the scenes within Dogma such as where, where you've got, I don't remember which, I believe it's um, Matt Damon's character and he's saying that he doesn't believe in organized religion because of the the poem, the well, the carpenter and the walrus and doing these comparisons to what these characters represent such as um, obviously the carpenter represents Christianity because Joseph being a carpenter and the walrus representing the eastern uh, religions because of Buddha and his belly, obviously the walrus being the large uh, mammal that it is and the Tusk being this reference to Lord Ganesha, so Hindu religion there. And without obviously having an understanding of religion and the complexities, you can't write a comparison like that. And I think this went over a lot of the, a lot of people's sort of heads. They just thought, oh, this is like taking the piss out of religion. You know, this is discrediting what we believe in. And it really wasn't. It was just how he chooses to view religion and, Obviously, as the film goes on, I mean, it's everything they do is is about being a good Christian. I mean, the fact that we have her being the last scion and essentially giving birth to carrying Christ at the end of the film. So, 
a lot of these ideas were kind of lost on people. And I think, again, this being released as a second film, you mentioned already that the opening, it doesn't perhaps play as well as it should. And again, this is mainly due to them casting the original opening, uh, which had Mr. Senning, so her father, and he's hosting a ball for the governor of New Jersey who would be played by Elizabeth Ashley. And in the scene, uh, we've got T.S., and he's as he's playing one of the colonial musket men, and he basically manages to screw up the whole event because um, <laughs> he gets his ma- musket caught in Brandy's hair. This is actually, if you get the 10th anniversary DVD, uh, this was released in 2005, you can actually see the scenes. This actually screws up the film because they had an additional 30 minutes of footage, and it's not as good as the original cut, same as the Empire Records fan edition isn't a good cut at all. You want to get the VHS version of Empire Records to see the true one. But basically, in the uh, in the in the scene, he gets his musket tangled up in Brandy's hair and accidentally shoots at the governor on the roof of the school, which obviously ends up costing Mr. Senning his reputation as well as a pay rise. And this explains why he <laughs> dislikes TS, you know, obviously. Um, but. At the same time, they cut out the whole mention of Julie Dwyer's death because Julie Dwyer, which I thought was a great tie-in to Clerks. Oh, yeah. She dies in the the YMCA swimming pool uh, because he makes the remark that she's fat, so she goes and does laps and suffers a brain embolism. And one of the things I loved about these early films is the fact that it all ties in like a Brett Easton Ellis novel. All the characters you tie in, you've got like, this character over here ties into this thing here. And obviously the most simplest one, as we said, would be the Julie Dwyer death where we see her funeral in Clerks. We find out the reason for her death and the person responsible in this film. And obviously again, when we get to more rats and she's going through her list of like the as sexual partners or when you've got the two characters and they're like connecting the fact that both from New Jersey and they know these characters that we've heard mentioned in the previous films. And again, Julie Dwyer's brought up. <laughs> And it's like, oh, I was friends with Julie Dry, and it's like, Shiku died in the pool. And I'm, so. I'm, I'm surprised. You know, what kills me is what the copy I ended up getting to, to revisit this was the 10 year anniversary one. Mm. And I just played the regular movie. I was like, I'm not gonna mess around. And so I completely missed that whole bit of it. But they must have, that must have been a very serious. You know, it's not just a matter of changing one scene because you've got a different scene. Like, mm. they talk about her death in this movie, like, in four or five different places. It gets referenced, so. Yeah, there's um, there's also, I mean, the we there's a char- the character Trisha here, who in the book, she's doing um, a, a manual about the sex drives of men from various age groups. Again, this is why I feel to be sort of classic Smith humor. Um, and there's a scene at the end where she distracts the security guard, La Force, who's kind of like this militant presence who manages to foil any sort of plot these uh, sort of heroes have without even trying, just by being a presence. And at the end, he actually is distracted uh, by Trisha, who has sex with him. And that's how they're able to set up the finale. But again, that's cut from the film. And we don't understand why La Force is looking so longingly at Trisha when we had the big sort of or what happened next recap at the end of the film. Yeah. But, um, that is, <laughs> and Lafour's is such a great character. We gotta, <laughs> that's, uh, Sven Thorsven. It's Sven Thorsen. That's how you pronounce it. Uh, I would go with that. <laughs> yeah. 
He's and I, if I, unless I'm mixing him up with someone else, he's one of these guys that's shown up in a bunch of movies actually. Yeah, um, he's. Um, I mean, he's best friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and he's he's shown up as like just like a. Um, yeah, like a henchman, or it a few times he's mm. been an actual like you know character, but he's usually the villain and stuff. And he's just this huge guy, um, and I just love him as a presence, as like the mall security guard that never says a word, never, <laughs> you know. And um, Jay and Silent Bob can't thwart him. No, he's kind of like what Silent Bob would be if he ever ditched Jay. Yes. Um, and again, it's just the fact that he's like Slam Bob. He's able to just tell you exactly what he's thinking and project everything he's saying, just with the simplest of emotions, such as like, uh, where the characters are like, oh, what are you going to do, Framus? And he just produces the weed. Yeah. <laughs> like, nowhere. <laughs> Obviously, one of our reoccurring characters throughout the SQ universe are the characters of Jay and Silent Bob, uh, here played by real-life best friends, uh, Jason Mewes as Jay, and our director, Kevin Smith, who plays Silent Bob, a character based on his own father. And originally, a character he included just because he wanted to be in his own film. Here again, they, they're, here they're kind of being the... I don't know if you want to use the word mercenaries, but they're kind of like the go-to guys if you need something doing. Um, and they kind of help Brody and T.S., through their failed attempts to sort of destroy the stage, we obviously see them try and knock out the pin. Uh, they also beat up the Easter Bunny really randomly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I mean, I don't know... I mean, what was your thoughts on the fact that these characters have been brought back for this film? They're sort of no longer hanging outside the uh, the one-stop, dealing drugs. They're here just randomly hanging out the mall. I mean, what do you think about these characters have been brought back? I, I, I loved it. It was, um, and in knowing that Julie Dwyer's death was not the original intent, it's a little surprising that they're there. But I mean, the, with this movie, it's clear that Kevin Smith is building his what became what becomes the Askew universe, right? Like with all these films tied together, and I I like them as yeah the little side characters that just pop in for a handful of scenes and. Um, in just kind of helping to kind of tie everything together, I think that's, I think it worked. I I, I liked seeing them there. Um, yeah. and it made me, you know, and 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 to have them continue on, like showing up in in later films and later films was was you just kind of took it for granted. Like, of course they're going to be in it, you know. Yeah, and I think one of the things I does absolutely love again with these characters is the fact that at the end of this film it shows their end story is that they end up with a monkey called Suzanne and for years it was sort of like how does this monkey tie in and then obviously in Jane Silent Bob strike back they get their monkey yes <laughs> and it was sort of like it was just wonderful how he finally managed to get the monkey worked in it was sort of like it originally seemed like oh what can we do with these two characters it's not like they're going to go on to like fame and fortune like everyone else uh, they're probably just going to be the same dropouts but we've got to give them something so oh, I don't know we'll give them a monkey uh, because people like monkeys, as you know, the audience reactions have shown. Yes. So it was nice that they managed to tie that in. Yeah, um, I, and I had been waiting for that, to be honest. I was you like, were waiting for Suzanne get... to reappear. I was waiting for yeah, the the road movie where it's them with the monkey, <laughs> and you know, um, 
So, yes, I was I was very excited about that. <laughs> As the cast here is isn't absolutely fantastic. I mean, you obviously mentioned already that it's very nineties. Uh, yes, movie, which I find kind of comforting. I don't know if it's sort of my sort of era. I know a lot of people sort of get very sort of nostalgic about the eighties and sort of like a lot of films that came out of that sort of era. But for me, the nineties um, is a very nostalgic sort of period of filmmaking. For myself, nineteen ninety nine was the golden year for filmmaking. Obviously, this film wasn't released in nineteen ninety nine. It was ninety five. Again, another strong year for uh, films in general. But I kind of like, the, as you said, the little bossa nova soundtracks and the pop culture, humor of the time, and just how it's, how it's shot. And the casting is, again, very sort of 90s. I mean, the fact we've got Shannon Doxy here, who plays Rennie. Uh, we've got Jason Lee, Jeremy London. And again, we, another person who was really sort of only coming into the forefront would be Ben Affleck. And someone who would take a lot longer to come to form would be uh, Ethan Supley. But again, these are all very sort of classic '90s uh, sort of its actors of the moment, really. And yeah, and, and don't forget the Rook, Michael Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker. Yeah, okay. him, him the as well. The nicest man in show business. <laughs> I mean, it, have you met Michael Rooker at all in your travels it, at all? No, I'm I'm in like Central New York State. I don't meet anybody. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Michael Rooker, this is, when you see Michael Rooker on any film, he comes off as probably one of the most intense people you will ever meet, whether you like watching like Henry the Portrait of the Serial Killer, or you're obviously watching this film, he's really intense. Or, I mean, even if you like watch him in Guns of the Galaxy, he seems intense. And he's yeah, and that's probably hearted. the most relaxed I've ever seen him was in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's still kind of, he's still pretty intense. Um but he's but he's a really he's a sweetheart, yeah. Oh, he's the one of my favorites uh, sort of fan pieces of footage that was out there, and basically there was uh, some kid dressed as uh, Star Lord, and uh, well, their signings, and he basically saw this kid and he asked the kid to have his picture taken with him, so he took a selfie with this kid dressed as Star Lord, and I was like, that is such a nice thing to do. You're right up there with oh, what's his name, Ron Pelman. That's cool. That that makes me happy when, you know, it's like it's celebrities like, are just like you know just end up being not insane. I guess. It's the yeah. But, you know. When they when you know they're just, they're there for you know they're there and they're connecting with the people. And I know that there's obviously going people who are gonna say that like Tom Savini they've had like the bad Tom Savini uh, sort of experience. But when I've obviously had people who spoke to Tom Savini, they've said to him, "It's like what happens." He's like, you know. That person could just call me at a bad moment. You know, I may not have had my coffee at that moment. Yeah. Um, you can't be like Mr. Happy, nice to my guy all the time. And it kind of goes some way, but I've not heard anyone say a bad thing about uh, about the Rook. Excellent. That makes that that makes me really happy. Does that make you happy now? That it you... does make me happy. I'm, I'm a glad. happy man now. Um, he's yeah. So he's he's great in this. I love seeing him do comedy. To take that, like, his trademark intensity and funnel <laughs> it into, you know, a character that's, like, the villain, but he's not going to kill anyone. He's just, you know, he's the antagonist there, you know. Um, but he's also a villain who's trying to bring back, a, like, a cliché dating show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, his, that's what that's really makes him villainous. <laughs> And actually, that to to loop back on something you touched on a, a 
minute before we start really diving into the cast. When I when I said before that this was such a '90s movie, I w- that was not a dig. Um, okay. It was uh, it was more like fondly remembering back to you know I'm I'm old enough so that my nostalgia is really for the mm. '80s, and I was old enough because in the 90s i'm in like high school college you know 20s that type of thing so i was aware of the concept of like things being retro so it's it's a it's a little surreal because when i think back to the 90s i was thinking back to the 70s you know (laughs) so you could see that kind of stutter but um yeah i didn't mean it as a dig by any means I, i just more of a more just a, a sign of the times, I think. Okay. Um, this film especially is, I have to say, one of the most noteworthy cameos. And this is a cameo that no one, when this film was released or when I, when I was showing it to like friends when uh, I was in college or whatnot, they didn't get the importance of this. But we have a cameo by Stan Lee. Yes. Also known as the king of comics himself. Years before he started like turning up in every Marvel film... <laughs> Which is why, like revisiting, I'm like, yeah, of course it's Stanley's in here. You know, you know, you almost take it for granted. Like, of course, it's and it's a... almost, and it almost threw me out a little bit that, um, that Brody, who is the like the hugest comics, the comic book fan in the in the in the movie, wouldn't recognize him on site. But I guess in the mid '90s, you wouldn't recognize Stanley on site because he hadn't done a million cameos. No, yeah, he was. And Stanley is kind of like, he's kind of like I put him in the same category as George Romero. He's like that grandfatherly figure yeah. to uh, a genre fans that that you <laughs> kind of want to be around. He's become this like adopted uncle, or, as I say, grandfather to us all, uh, just as a genre fan. So it's nice to see Stanley, and it's probably his most unique cameo he's ever done, um, as seeing as it consists of Brody basically. Asking about the sex sex uh, organs of various superheroes, and he's also he's playing himself as the other thing, you know. <laughs> so he's not like he's not just walking in and out as like a security guard or as yeah. somebody being mistaken for Hugh Hefner or you know whatever. I mean, he's just he's him hanging out at the mall. <laughs> I love the fact, but he's hanging out at the mall and commenting about how he likes looking at couples. Yes, and and he's this romantic sort of guy, and he's sort of like, and you're watching the scene, and he's like, going on, he's like, look at that couple, they look happy, and it's like, what? <laughs> and you don't know if it's like should be taken as being creepy or not, and then obviously he meets um, up with uh, T.S. at the end, and he's like, oh yeah, I did this uh, whole spiel was based on like Spider-Man, you know, love be a vulture tonight, and the fact that he's like talking about um, the scene where Peter Parker and Mary Jane go laundry shop and I'm thinking, I can never remember an issue of Spider-Man where that happened It, it, it may have I couldn't tell you I don't know, <laughs> if, if we do have any comic book fans that can verify this has happened or not um, I would very much like to know if this did happen or not because every Spider-Man comic I read I don't remember them doing anything that risque um, I just remember a lot of smart ass comments and and lots of real cool villains and stuff, but no thing uh, about him going lingerie shopping with uh, Mary Jane. But you no, know, uh, but I love I love this cameo, and I love how they they use it because this this falls firmly in the bucket of the Kevin Smith writer 
portion oh, of the yeah. film, in my mind. Like, this is taking something that feels like a trope from a rom-com, you know? <laughs> where, you, where, like, one of the characters is mixed up and bumps into some celebrity or minor celebrity of some kind who just arbitrarily doles out sage advice, <laughs> you know? I feel like even though I can't name it, like that doesn't that feel like something that you would see in some? Yeah, it it's, yeah. it feels very convenient. Uh, to I mean, I have to ask that obviously if this was, if you were obviously playing the Brody character and the the celebrity that was going to give you your like turning point uh, sage advice, which uh, celebrity would you like to have seen in like the Stanley sort of role? Oh, it'd have to be Al Leong. Okay. Not even do you, do you know who Al Leong is? Al Leong is uh, the Hatchet Man in Big Trouble in Little China. Hell yeah, he's the Hatchet Man in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> he is he is my first. He was probably my first like celebrity. I was a big fan of uh, my best friend and I when we were in like the the se- seventh grade or so. We joined the Al Leong fan club because <laughs> better believe it, there was an Al Leong fan club. Um, yeah, just a huge fan of the. I just get so excited when he shows up in a movie, because he does so little. <laughs> he does. He he sort of turns up and uh, and and does his thing. I mean, if yes, it, if for, it was my for, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say for any any listeners who don't know who Al Leong is, just do a Google image search of <laughs> Al Leong, and you'll be like, oh yeah, that guy. But he's not the oh, hey, it's that guy kind of character actors mm. the way that, like, a Stephen Tobolowsky is. He's more just really kind of recognizable henchman <laughs> that shows up, probably doesn't have any lines, is in a few fight scenes, and gets killed. And am I right in saying he's the, uh, the, hen- the Asian henchman in Die Hard? He is the Asian henchman. That's probably his most one of his most notable <laughs> roles as age, Asian henchman in Die Hard who sneaks out a Nestle Crunch. Yes, when when the uh, squat team is coming in, um, he's also the uh, the torturer in Lethal Weapon, um, who's like electrocuting uh, Mel Gibson, um, and and as you mentioned, he's in Big Trouble, Little China, and he's just in so much more. Uh, we just covered on Layer the Unwanted. We just covered Showdown in Little Tokyo, which was surprisingly enjoyable. <laughs> I would have never guessed in a million years I'd be saying those words, but he shows up in that. It, like, I get all excited. It's like, Leong, he's in this. So. We discussed that. I mean, that got brought up uh, when we were discussing Big Trouble in Little China. Because when we had DJ Valentine on, we were discussing Big Trouble in Little China, and it was sort of like, where'd you go for the sequel? And it was like, obviously, Big Trouble in Little Tokyo. Uh, which yeah. obviously lets onto that, and I mean that features one of the greatest bad guys in the world, Kari uh, Hiroyuki Tagawa, who uh, let's played uh, played the villain in Mortal Kombat. Yes, it he did. Also, also features uh, Tia Carrera, which is always welcome. And, and her body double gets lots of featuring in that movie. Don't don't kill that movie for me. I don't need to know there's a body double in it. I I go for what I see the brain. Oh, I saw. I feel like I just told you there's no Santa Claus. Oh, and uh, <laughs> also, sorry, there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> like, so. I feel that we're going to have the crossroads discussion. It's like there's four characters and a $50 bill, and it's going to be like, Tirikara's bounty double, Santa Claus the Easter Bunny. Yeah. 
and an ex who doesn't hate hate you. Uh, which one gets the fifty dollars? <laughs> awesome. Um, for myself, I would say Tom Waits would be my nice. spiritual girl. Him or um, James Hong. Very nice. Um, also known as the the go to Asian guy if you need the Asian guy in your film. Yes. Like, the, he, I mean, he turns up pretty much pretty much everywhere. I mean, he plays Lo Pan in Big Trouble Little China. He plays the waiter in The Big Bang Fury when they used to hang out at the Chinese restaurant. So he's uh, he's everywhere. Um, just speaking of obviously recognizable faces, we've mentioned already Ethan Souffle is in this. And for myself, he has probably one of the most heart-wrenching journeys of the whole film. <laughs> I mean, it is just an emotional roller coaster we've gone with this character as he here appears as Willem. And Willem's only goal in life is to be able to see the sailboat in the magic eye picture. And I, I feel for him because I was that guy. I mean, I didn't bring a lunch with me, but yes. like I have never been able to um, to see at the sailboat. <laughs> I just love his, his optimism when we meet him. It's like, I've got a lunch and a soda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just his whole day is planned around seeing this fucking sailboat. <laughs> And when you have the little kid turns up and he's like, oh, Skewn, he's like, ha-ha, you dumb little bastard. <laughs> and again, this is what I love about Smith. He's not afraid to swear at children. Right. Um, whereas other directors would probably have, like, his character, like, say something drugsy, but, but he just, like, goes straight for the uh, throat punch with that one. Absolutely. And there's lots of that's you know, there's a lot of little things and this is this is one of those movies where I think it's the little things I really enjoy more than any big set pieces or any scenes or anything. I uh it is little things like swearing at you know, swearing at the kids, like that it's not you know, scooters out of boat, you dumb shit, you know, whatever he says to them. Um I love the store names in this movie. Because they're goofy, but they're realistic. They sound like they should be the names of stores in the mall. It's all like fashionable mail and time for cookies and, you know, that kind of stuff. I love that. And I never noticed it till I revisited this. Um, apparently, his his vision, I don't know if this is Kevin Smith's vision or I have to believe so because everyone comments on it, of, of being a good boyfriend is going to stores that the girl wants to shop at <laughs> like, it, gets, it gets mentioned like a half dozen times like he even took me to the stores that i want to shop at you know that kind of thing and that's just the, your mother right and like the key, key things and the overall shagginess of the of this movie i counted at least four or five scenarios where they're walking through the mall having the conversation and one of them stops abruptly and goes holy shit at something off camera <laughs> and they just go running over to it and it's just another character or something going on or like and that's how they just introduce like new topic just, yeah you know so but then again have you have you ever heard smith describe his original script for the uh for the green hornet no it'd be basically the green hornet in kato Sitting in front of the Black Beauty, just talking usual Kevin Smith sort of dialogue, just just shooting the breeze, and they'd be like, "Hey, look at that thing!" And then they'd like walk off camera, and you hear like fighting sounds, and then they'd like come back and like dusting themselves off, and it's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, totally." <laughs> just continue their conversation. <laughs> this would be how he'd shoot it because he, at the time, he said that he hates shooting action, and then 
obviously later in his career, he does Red State, probably one of the most action-packed movies of, I don't know, the last five years or so. Wow. I mean, it has wow. a 45-minute shootout, for Christ's sake. I think even John Woo struggled to do that with Hard Boiled. Yeah. I had no, I I hadn't gotten around to checking out Red State. Now I kind of have to. I think Red State is, it's very different from his other films. It's the same way that um, obviously Jersey Girl, which I really enjoyed Jersey Girl. A lot of people would like, oh, I don't like this. And again, I I really liked it. And I like it more since obviously becoming a parent myself. I I think it's really a sweet little film, and you can understand why he made it when you obviously look at the things that were sort of surrounding him at the time, such as um, his best friend Jason Mewes who had been gone to rehab um, at the point and he was trying to get clean and obviously he wanted to do something a little more mature and obviously becoming a father himself, he wanted to do something a little more mature as a filmmaker and obviously Jersey Girl would be that film and it unfortunately got caught up in the whole uh, Ben Affleck, uh, J-Lo fallout and kind of got lost in the shuffle but yeah i always wondered if that was really what happened with that film is that it just had that that uh benefer stank to mm. it you know and i mean um, they're very good together i mean the as he says in his book uh silent bob speaks that when he was shooting it he just saw a couple that were very much in love at the time and he didn't see them breaking up and the performance they give it's an it's a nice little it's really just a cameo for jennifer lopez because Oh, spoiler alert, she dies. Uh, which well, is good if you like, don't like Jennifer Lopez, so... Isn't that like in, like, the first ten minutes or something? I thought it was... Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, so... you know, he, um... <laughs> he hopes it was her name... Uh, Liz Tyler, is that? Liv Tyler? Liv Tyler. He, okay. uh... He hooks it with Liv Tyler, so, you know, things will work out in the end. Yeah. But, no, Red State, I would definitely... I would check out. It's... It's, it's certainly different than everything he's done. It was his first attempt at horror, and I really enjoyed it. Quentin Tarantino gave it uh, the greater poster quote of, I freaking love this movie. <laughs> so, if you're like myself and buy into everything Tarantino says, then uh, go see it. I might have to, you know, I might have to put it back on my radar, if anything else, because of its reputation of being bad, and to okay. see if it's as, uh, I mean, hell, if I sat through Geely, then I can definitely do uh, Jersey Girl, so. Yeah. Yeah. I have to see, just obviously getting back to the film we discussed yeah. before we go from, like, the another of these tangents. For myself, the more interesting parts isn't, obviously, we've got this ongoing main storyline where uh, Brody and TS are trying to get back with their respective partners uh, and correct whatever sort of flaws they had in their relationship. But for myself, the journey itself and the inter- the side characters we meet are kind of more interesting than the actual sort of uh, relationship plot line. The fact that we go and see a, a, a tri- tri-nippled uh, fortune teller, I find a lot more interesting than obviously when T.S. is obviously trying to get the proposal to Brandy. Well, and that's some of the that's some of the weakness of this movie, and and part of where I was like, I'm not surprised at flop because like. For as prominent as that storyline is, Brandy is barely in the film. <laughs> Did you notice that? Like, it's a shame, really, because Claire Florenti, Flor- Florani, uh, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, Claire Florani <laughs> is incredibly hot. Um, she's got that geek chic before you know geek chic became hip. Oh, and they and they definitely play up that element of her in this film. But yeah, she's barely in the movie, and 
TS is not a very likable character. So, like, he's so he's... overshadowed by Jason Lee's just just being Jason Lee, as best I can. <laughs> Wow. This know. is the, the thing, because Jason Lee's supposed to be the sidekick, but in a way you feel that it's his film more than T.S.'s oh, journey. Absolutely. It, yeah, on paper, on paper, this movie is all about T.S. trying to win back uh, Brandy, but he is so outshone by by Brody throughout mm. the film. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I yeah. guess in that way, I mean, this is... Again, just to tie it back to Big Trouble in Little China, here we are again watching a film where we think we're watching the main character, but we're actually watching the psychic. The difference being is that was intentional in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> I don't think it was intentional here. I really don't. I think it was – I think they were trying to establish a, a similar um, uh, dynamic as they had in Clerks. Mm. Where you had the main character is kind of put upon and trying to figure things out, and he's got this really mouthy Randy sidekick. But it just here, I don't know if it's because Brandy is so absent from it, and Shannon Doherty does show up a lot, or if it's just the way it's written, or the way that the performances. But yeah, it just Brody completely blows TS out of the water as far as you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you actually, and I, I felt like I cared more about, by the end of it, you kind of care more of whether uh, Brody and Shannon Dory to get back together or not. Whereas, like, you know, with T.S. and Brandon, you're like, well, okay. Especially, you know, he's such a, so douchey in, when they're together. Mm. He's so, you know, <laughs> that opening scene, he's like a he's like a douche. And then in the big climax at the game show, his responses, like he's supposed to be winning her back, and he's so snippy. He's like, "That wouldn't be the kind of card you would dump your boyfriend in." Like, what the hell is that, dude? What are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> so, but, I mean, you obviously again, this is the thing. He refuses to accept that he cares about her. That he's like that. She was completely out of line for not accepting the fact that he wakes up and instantly wants to play Mega Drive ice yeah, hockey. This is he being Brody, not TS. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with... And as a as someone who grew up in the state of Connecticut, I could understand the desire to see the Hartford Whalers actually win something. That um, <laughs> that that caught me right in the heart. Yeah. Right the thing I think this is the thing again. As you said, with TS, he has come off a little whiny, and his his goes so straight straight now. He wants to obviously get back with Brandy, whereas when we look at Brody, he's like he doesn't want to admit that he has feelings for Renee, Renee and. I love the fact that the thing which spurs him into action is the fact that Ben Affleck's character, Shannon, wants to do it in a very uncomfortable place. What, you mean like the back of a Volkswagen? <laughs> I knew I was going to say you after you get that one. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the thing which springs him into action. Not like him having like this big uh, moment where he sort of like suddenly realizes he's got feelings for her when he finds out she's dating other men. No, the fact that, <laughs> that this... Uh, douchebag basically wants to um, do his ex-girlfriend in, as I said, in an uncomfortable place. Gee, wonder what that's a reference to. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the thing which sort of spurs him into action, and obviously then his spiritual guide, in this case, Stanley, is the uh, sort of trigger for him. But I think it's weird, because as I said, it's T.S. is his sort of spiritual guide is the uh, tried-nippled fortune teller. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> I'm just so trying to think of anything we haven't discussed in this one. Cause we've... 
I feel that yeah. we, some bits. I mean, I think the only thing we haven't discussed is the fact that you get to see Michael Rooker's Rooker nude. So you know, something for the ladies, or you know, people oh, would yeah. see Michael Rooker nude. Enjoy. Um, the DVD commentary. I love the fact that they didn't update it they, for them from the laser disc. So uh, if you listen to the commentary, it opens with Kevin Smith saying "fuck DVD." And there's also um, a screw-up on the Region 2 DVD where it contains the menus for Colossus Way. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, uh, it's not supposed to be on there. This isn't like some some joke or something. This was actually just a production screw-up uh, by Universal. Huh. I would I would say yeah. Talk about the commentary. I would I would say that even if you're not a huge fan of this movie, like you thought it was okay, this is one of the best commentaries I've ever listened to. It is such a hangout. Like they're just hanging out and telling stories, and it's kind of what you kind of hope and wish that all movie commentaries would be like. It's the bunch of them in a room, and I think it's like people pop in in the middle of it, if I remember right, like just swinging by, and like they're clearly just like having a bunch of beers and revisiting the film and telling stories. At least half of the jokes from like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back are ref- are like shout-outs to this commentary. <laughs> like the whole... um you know, Affleck with the bomb and Phantoms, yo, comes from this commentary. <laughs> but he was. It's hard to disagree with that sort of... Uh, we actually, sort of Jason and I visited Phantoms, and, and we had to disagree that, well, he wasn't bad. He was not the bomb. I know, that. Jason already dropped this bombshell in the previous episode. So Did he? Oh, okay. Dropping some hand bombs on me today, man. I guess. But, um, or even just calling out like little things, little gags that are thrown in the background, like the guy walking around with that one small steel girder in the background of <laughs> yeah. So great uh, stuff in the commentary. I would highly recommend it. One of the things which has obviously come out when uh, Kevin Smith has been doing his an audience with, I believe it's mentioned on the first one. He claims he actually came up with the hair gel scene scene in there's something about Mary. He actually came up with it first for Morats. And the scene would be that, uh, well, you obviously got Jolly Lauren Adams. Is, oh, okay. um, it's supposed to be in the next change room. And Jane, Silent Bob are jerking off and it shoots over. And that's why she has the messed up hair later in the film. That's what his claim is that he came up with that first. And it was cut out because studio executives were like, no one's going to pay to see a movie which has got um, a jacket in the hair. And then, of course, there's something about Mary comes out. It's the most talked about scene, and it goes on to make millions of dollars at the box office. So I don't know it's, if there's any truth in that story or not, but... It's a good story, if if anything else. So, uh, yeah. Go figure. I could not sit through... I, I could not stand that movie, though. There's I gotta say. Yeah. I don't get it. I really don't get it at all. I oh I was miserable and and I saw it in the theater, um, with my sister. Oh, that <laughs> and, must have been fun. And, so and like everyone else in the theater is laughing their asses off, and I'm looking around like, is everyone insane? What the hell is going on here? It's kind of like watching Annie Hall with your with your mum, and it's like, oh great nudity, and then it's like we get that the way. Oh great drugs. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that was, you know, and it, like, I got over that, the awkwardness of, but, like, 
I was more perplexed that everyone just thought this was the funniest damn thing they'd ever seen, and uh, I did not get it. But yeah, I, I, I again, I just, I just didn't, didn't get it. Um, but then again, no one seemed to get Zoolander when it was released. Oh, and I love Zoolander. Zoolander. <laughs> I think that's a, a topic for another episode where we sit down and discuss Zoolander because. We could be going on for an hour and a bit just discussing Zootlander. And- uh, we have we have gone on a, like at least a half dozen different film tangents, and we have we still have a whole other film to dig yeah. into. Yeah, well, this is this is what we do in the show. We we encourage discussion. We have tangents. We link into things and expand the film going experience. At least that's the way we like to view it. Anyway, excellent. Any sort of final thoughts on this one before we obviously uh, do move on? I just. It is an enjoyable film. Uh, I, I like Ball Rats a lot. It is a flawed film, so I could totally understand how it is not anybody's favorite Kevin Smith film or even among their top three or whatever. Mm. But it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it, kind of warts and all. So, cool. And uh, further viewing, if you like Mall Rats, where do you go next? Uh, honestly, if you like Mall Rats, I think you go to our next film, Bio Zombie. There's a reason why I. <laughs> I picked this and then said that we should pair these together. Yeah. I mean, the obvious is, like, after after Mall Rats, you go to another Kevin Smith film. But nah, screw that. Be different and go to Biozombie. <laughs> For myself, I'm uh, going to go on a slightly different route. I'm going to suggest that you check out the film Go, uh, released in 1999, uh, starring Katie, Katie Holmes. Again, very underrated movie from that period. Um, another good little indie comedy of sorts would be Ghost World. And just because I feel that Richard Linklater really is the reason Kevin Smith got into filmmaking, especially because he did Slacker, which inspired Clerks. So just to throw it back to Linklater, I would uh, also recommend checking out Dazed and Confused. Again, another film which just thrives on going off on tangents. So those would be uh, my personal picks to follow this one up with. All solid picks. Cannot argue with any of those. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we return, we'll be looking at our second film this evening, Bio Zombie. If you like intelligent and smart movie discussion, Base is a zombie movie. <laughs> How did he write a book if he doesn't have an arm? Or want to hear the latest news on your favorite actor? Talk some Julianne Moore, I guess. <laughs> Whales have more films than Zoe Spontana. And check out The Lambcast. Where no question is too risque. Rachel, do you have a mouth? Check out the Lambcast, the official podcast of the Lamb, the largest association of movie blogs, which can be found at largeassmovieblogs.blogspot.com. Si habla español. Hola y bienvenido a la.
we're back. Uh, Stu joining me in the uh, studio this evening is Nolan. Yes, I'm still here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, in the first half, we uh, obviously discussed at length uh, Kevin Smith's second film, uh, More Rats. Um, something we forgot to bring up in that is the fact that Smith is actually working on the sequel, uh, currently titled More Brats, uh, which is rumoured to be his next film on the slate, though he seems to be going back and forth between doing More Brats and Clerks 3. So I guess it's uh, we have to wait until we get some confirmation there. Uh, some further confirmation because he also seems to be saying he's going to do another two films in his Great White North trilogy, which obviously started with Tusk, and he's planning on doing uh, a couple more films. And from what I believe, uh, we'll also be recruiting Johnny Depp to uh, do some more cameo work for him. So uh, that's exciting. Be exciting to obviously see where he goes uh, next in this sort of return to his indie roots, so to speak. He's been taking. Um, but before we discuss our second film of the evening, uh, BioZombie, I just want to give a quick shout out to the ch site channelsuperhero.com, uh, run by the maestro of superhero movies, Bubba Wheat. Uh, this is his offshoot site, and he's got a bunch of writers, including myself. Let's give myself a cheeky nod there. Uh, where I'm currently revisiting the whole of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and we've also been doing some work for Batman Beyond. But the site itself has got a whole heap of great superhero TV shows. Uh, being published on there at the moment. We've got some coverage of Daredevil, iZombie, uh, The Walking Dead and Heroes, as well as some web series like We Might Be Superheroes. So there's a lot of great content on there and some great writers on there as well. Uh, so make sure you give it a give it a look if you've got a spare five minutes, uh, channelsuperhero.com. Um, Excellent. Yes, and definitely there's some old school stuff there too, like Spider-Man and his amazing friends and the super friends and stuff like that. That's uh, good stuff. Always good to, to give props to the Bubba Weed. I've decided recently that it should be the Bubba Weed. The Bubba Weed. The Bubba Weed. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's really sort of found his niche with, with comic book movies. And now whenever we obviously discuss comic book movies, he's always the first name that's brought up. So... It's uh, exciting to obviously see him doing the TV side, even if it does feel like a bit of a cheeky plug because it's uh, obviously writing for them at the moment. But um, he also did a great blogophone on uh, Saturday morning cartoons as well, uh, which we saw stuff such as SWAT Cats, Dungeons and Dragons, Plastic Man, um, and JC and the Wheeled Warriors all being covered uh, on there. So definitely a whole heap of stuff on there that's worth uh, definitely checking out. He is a man of many talents. I don't know if you knew this, but um, for what episode did we do it? Did we do it as a as a April Fool's episode? I think so. Not too long ago, on the layer of the unwanted, we uh, we did a live script reading of the room. Okay. And, uh, and the bubble wheat was our Denny, and he was brilliant. <laughs> he was so good. I keep feeling whenever. I talked to Bubba Wheat, though. I always feel that Jazz Radio is, like, missing a trick by not hiring him. His laid-back style would be so suited to uh, Jazz Radio. He so. would he would have a great voice for that, absolutely. Um, but I will have to listen to that. Um, I have to, like, see if it would, like, uh, how it compares to uh, Nick Rehack over at French Toast Sunday when they did their script reading of The Breakfast Club and he played Carl the Janitor. Oh, nice. It's... Um, uh, I gotta check. I gotta check them doing that out. That'd be great. This one is is worth doing. I don't know where Jason found this script, but 
just for listening to um, to Steve Honeywell of 1001 Plus read the stage directions. <laughs> is the stage directions are priceless, and he he made it through the stage directions. There were a few times we had to stop because we all just lost it, but um, definitely worth checking out. So, and uh, where can folks find uh, find that for you? Uh, Layer of the Unwanted. You could find it at um, at iTunes, and you can find it at um, oh, uh, Podomatic. Is that the podcast yeah. thing? I I don't handle the technical stuff. <laughs> I I kind of show up and look pretty, you know. Better than um, that, just type it into Google. Google's yeah. your friend, people. So you will find that. You can always find links and such at uh, Your Face, which you can find at www.yourfaceisa.com. We also have, uh, you know, there's a, a Facebook page for the layer, and uh, it's on the Twitter. You know, I don't do much with the Twitter. But that's another thing. At, but uh, Links, as always, can also be found in the uh, description section below. So if you did uh, miss any of those details, uh, check out the description below, and you will find uh, all you need to know. Um, but on to our second film this evening. We're looking at the, how can we put this, a zombie comedy uh, of sorts, uh, directed by Wilson Yip, who's probably best now known for directing the likes of Ip Man 1 and Ip Man 2, uh, Donnie Yen's real sort of breakout films. His recent work, obviously, being more focused towards the martial arts genres, he's done films such as SBL Killzone, Dragon Tiger Gate, and again, the highly influential Flashpoint, which again saw Donnie Yen combining his sort of traditional martial arts style with elements of mixed martial arts to bone crunch in effect. But BioZombie, released in 1998, saw him in more of an action uh, frame of mind. The film itself uh, follows two slackers, here known as Woody Invincible and Crazy B, just two of the crazy names that will show up uh, over the course of this discussion, certainly, who run a business um, bootlegging DVDs, and one night they encounter supposedly dying businessmen who has been taking an experimental biological weapon that turns him into a flesh-eating zombie, which unfortunately also looks like a soft drink. Now returning to the mall, they manage to spark a small-scale zombie riot, and it's up to the band of misfits and other assorted uh, store owners to try and survive this outbreak. Um, a unique film, to say the least. Uh, what's your opening thoughts on this one, Nolan? Uh, my my opening thoughts are that if you approach the the kind of the byline of this movie, which is just simply people in a mall fighting off zombies, you kind of think like, okay, whatever. We've seen this before. Hmm. Whatever. And uh, no, it really is. This is why I kind of asked you to. If we could do mall cover mall rats first. It really, to me, feels like mall rats with zombies. Like the energy of it and the vibe of this movie, especially for the first third of it, is very much a comedy. And it feels like you could see like Woody and B being, you know, they're like an upbeat kind of more kind of uh, I don't know. Um, delinquent version of T.S. And, and Brody. Like, they just... They just fast-talk their ways in and out of trouble, and they hit on girls, and they 
they run the you know they're working at the DVD shop in, in theory where they <laughs> they're really kind of I this time around when I was watching it because this wasn't my first time seeing it it struck me that they don't own the shop they just work there and they're they're selling the bootleg movies probably on the side and not letting people know that they're bootlegs and keeping that money <laughs> like you know because that's you find out like that's the kind of stuff they do um it's uh it's it's a it's a very kind of high energy kind of fun movie um it is not kind of what you might expect it's it's i i think that that's that's my big my big takeaway from it uh okay. what, what did you think for myself it's like a low budget version of dawn of the dead um when i'm watching it there's a it's sort of if you just say you like if you're like a film student or something and you're like oh i'm going to remake dawn of the dead but i haven't got a lot of money um, and I've got like limited, I've got like a small mall that I can probably hang around in to shoot this. That's what it felt in. And it's almost kind of fitting, really, that the film opens like you're watching a pirate video. Yes. Uh, where, <laughs> where you've got the you've got complaints of them that people are standing up or laughing and they're making comments about how some girl looks hot, like two rows in front of them, and the camera's shaking all over the screen as. As you see, like the uh, title sequence uh, obviously come up, and it did actually make me think because this has been the first time I've seen this film that I'd somehow got like a pirate copy, um, and obviously it then switches into its its proper film stock, which again is that sort of classic uh, sort of late eighties, nineties Hong Kong uh, sort of stock footage that uh, that they were like shooting on. So when you see films like uh, Police Story or The Killer or Hard Bold, they all have got this very sort of fuzzy sort of uh, film stock that they're shooting on, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of nostalgic. It's kind of comforting, you know. Like as I said, like while like watching '90s movies, it's got a nice uh, warm feel to it. But as you said, we've got these two characters that don't do any work. They randomly threaten someone who complains about the shoddiness of their DVD merchandise with light guns but act like they're real guns. Yep. <laughs> um, we have a scene towards the end where the film seems to think it's like a computer game and it cuts to all these characters and like has them like come up with stats like weapon and uh, sex rating and height <laughs> and weight and stuff, which has absolutely nothing to do with the film. Nope, nope, not at all. Um, and that's the kind of thing where I, I think I get where it's very fun like I, I agree it is a very low budget movie and that shows but i feel like it's more it's infinitely more playful than than like uh dawn of the dead i mean dawn of the dead's a, a good a great satire but i don't think of it as like this is almost like playful and i don't know if it's like the rock score in the background just the, the guitar shredding away or what or or those little throwaway moments like the yeah where everyone's shown posing with their like video game select your character select your character kind of things yeah. but um yeah i just uh i found it very light and fun in a way that a lot of times zombie movies can be very heavy very serious you know i mean again would this have been a hong kong zombie movie it doesn't follow the traditional rules of what we'd expect from a western zombie movie i mean even if you when you go back to obviously with the zombie 
movies of history. And we like look at things such as like Plague of the Zombies or uh, White Zombie. And zombies originally were used as like these slave labor sort of representatives. And it's only once Romero got his hands on them that they became the sort of gut munch as we expect them to be now. And and it was again these the the whole sort of format changed when we had returned the living dead where zombies could talk and they could run and they started using brains and I love the fact that here again Wilson Yip says, you know what, we're doing zombies but I'm gonna do it my own way and hence in his way zombies are still able to uh manipulate things that they still have some element of humanity to them, as we see with like the sushi chef um and as well as one of the police officers who gets turned into a zombie still able to act normally he's not a shuffling sort of zombie and the fact that they show the zombie vi vision in the polarized sort of view so everything's very black and white um and the fact that they can't see you if you're directly in front of them yeah i um i didn't know how to feel about the 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 kind of um that zombie vision the photo negative zombie vision but listening to you describe it that way i think it's actually it's more clever than it played out mm. when i watched it when i watched it i'm like okay this is just a really cheap effect but i do kind of like the idea of like this in the zombie brain everything's black and white <laughs> you know <laughs> it's this way or that way um and you're right the uh that's one of the you see it right out of the gate where one of the first one of the first characters that becomes a zombie is, uh, you know, the guy that um, the guy the guy from the military that uh, Woody and B accidentally hit with their boss's car, <laughs> and they of course then the first thing they do is they like they steal the guy's phone and sell it to uh, Koi who is like the d bag who runs the the secondhand shop, and so when the zombie zombified military guy comes back he like smashes the display case and reclaims his phone because he like recognizes oh that's mine you know so <laughs> yeah again while we're obviously we've been sold this movie as a zombie movie it seems to forget that it is supposed to be a zombie movie i think we're at least a good hour into this this film before it becomes a zombie movie and it's really the sort of last half hour where it goes into sort of a more traditional sort of zombie route where they're trying to achieve various objectives and obviously battling zombies with, I have to say, some of the more unique weaponry I've seen in a zombie movie. We've got like a power drill. We've got a tap and a piece of pipe, which they stab into a zombie and then turn the tap on. Yes. <laughs> um, as well as a wrench and a pole being used. So there's a lot of originality, certainly, with these uh, zombie fights. It's just a shame that it takes about over an hour for the, the film to realize it's supposed to be a zombie movie. I was I was kind of okay with that though, because the zombies are introduced earlier than that, but it's not they don't go for the swarm right away. No, they have like a zombie that's running around and will take out like one person here, and then take out this person, and then you don't find out what happens for like fifteen minutes that happens to that person if they're zombified or they're mm. dead or you know. So it kind of very slowly, but. I thought that kind of worked. I kind of liked that they didn't just go straight for the there's hordes and we gotta hew our way through it. So it kind of it kind of built in a little more, um, and I'm sure the budget tied a lot into that. Um, you know, um, not having you know the money to have like hundreds and hundreds of extras to do this, but um, I thought it kind of 
especially the way that they they set it up like yes it's at the mall but it's at the mall after hours so like there you're already talking about a very small number of people that are in the mall because a mall after hours there's almost nobody there i don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh being in a mall after hours we don't and this is a problem because we don't really hear, we we have perhaps a couple of malls and they're sort of the major cities but i don't think i've ever had the uh the experience of being in in a mall after hours no it's actually really cool it's a little little side story here i had uh when i was in my 20s i had a friend who worked mall security in a mall and uh he had to work christmas night okay so we all went down there with like a case of beer <laughs> and spent the time like having wheelchair races down the thing and riding the little choo-choo train around santa's <laughs> land and you know watching movie played cards in the security room and um yeah it was fun good stuff <laughs> you see you just remember making me uh remember a story when they were shooting the uh, original uh, Dawn of the Dead uh, because again Romero was shooting it after hours at this this shopping mall and uh, this story is actually you can read it in the uh, book Night of the Living Dead it is by Joe King or Joe Lane I believe um, I will clarify that in a minute um, and he was saying that there was a group of zombie extras who got drunk and actually hijacked a golf cart and went careening uh, around the mall. Awesome. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's again, just, I don't know which I would want to see more. The fact you and your drunk buddies riding the choo-choo train around Santa Land <laughs> or a bunch of zombies in a, a golf cart. It's a, it's a toss-up. I don't know. If only we had thought ahead and brought makeup to make ourselves into zombies before getting on the train. That would have been that would have been it, but oh well. I think again that's 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 something we're yet to see. Uh, zombies on a train. <laughs> I'm sure it's coming. So, um, yeah, let's um. So getting back to this movie, can we talk? I want to talk about the mall itself for a second, and I felt like this was something that jumped out at me, and I didn't want to get your thoughts on it, um. And I'm sure it was coincidental. But you, you did mention that, like, they have to use really odd weapons. Like, very, they had to get really creative as far as weapons. And um, I feel like this mall, it almost reminded me in a, in a way, it's a little bit akin to the Dirt Mall in Mallrats, where it's not a great mall. And it's, <laughs> you know, the... And I don't know if this is just common for the malls in, in Hong Kong, but, like it's all like low ceilings. So it's very claustrophobic feeling. Yeah. And all of the storefronts, it's all like glass. So it's like glass, glass walls and glass doors. So it doesn't feel like, like hiding in a store doesn't make you feel safe. I just thought that was, I didn't know if those things kind of jumped out at you or not. And, uh, I can certainly see what, uh, see what you mean there. It's yeah. It's a, it is, as you say, it's, it's more of a dirt mall. Um, it's certainly not nothing like we'd see in other movies like Dawn of the Dead or its or its remake. Um, so it's certainly not fancy, but I kind of like the idea that there, although you've got this illusion of safety, there is nowhere really to hide because, as you said, it's all sort of glass doors, um, and the, there's never this any sort of element of safety. It's always sort of like 
this temporary sort of safeness. Bizarrely, for some reason, whenever the characters do go into a store, the zombies seem to disappear. Um, they just tend to, to go off somewhere else or distract themselves with someone else. I think there's a scene where one of the zombies is more distracted with a coke machine than he is with actually hunting for any of the uh, survivors. Yep. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of like the Dirt Mole certainly. I mean, yes, it is probably representative of the budget. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's kind of a, kind of a change of setting, especially in these sort of times, especially with the zombie genre, where every idea seems to have been overworked um, to actually find something that you haven't seen before within within it. Even if it's just something as simple as what we uh, obviously get here with the dirt more. And I think the the thing that reminds me of most is the uh, video game Dead Rising. I have to wonder if they saw this film and was like, this is going to be like how we're going to make our game. Maybe. But even even in the in Dead Rising, like it is an American style mall with like a huge hallway. And, you know, um, it doesn't have quite the claustrophobic that everywhere does here. Um, same with like Dawn of the, you know, and that's kind of the point of Dawn of the Dead is that it's this huge mecca of you know, commerce and stuff, but um, here it's all very tight, and again, it's probably, could very well be indicative of just, that's how malls are in Hong Kong, I don't know, I, have, I haven't been, um, but I just, it, it kind of, it differentiates itself mm. that way in my mind. It certainly seems to be uh, representative of, of how malls are in, in Hong Kong, just obviously looking at other films sort of catch my memory back here and when you look at films like Chunking Express um, again we get scenes of the malls that are very much like we see here such as like the opening scene where she's being uh, chased for, for the market and stuff. It, it does seem like very similar it's perhaps not as claustrophobic as we see it here where everything does seem that you've only got like enough space for one person to walk down the hallways and everything is just like a glass storefront but I think I feel perhaps it is just representative of Hong Kong malls compared to obviously the more western malls we've become accustomed to seeing yeah should we should we dig into some of the characters some which guys do you want to start with i mean i love the fact that we got two girls here which are one's called jelly and the other's rolls yes <laughs> so yeah I mean, we just kind of run through the main ca- so the jelly and and rolls is like the hot chick you know, of the some of them are just very the kind of cookie cutter, and Jelly is just the the cute best friend. Um, we mentioned Koi, who is like the d bag that runs the um, the second hand electronics store, and I feel like any good zombie movie needs like the d bag. Like this, this guy's just a jerk, and he has this attractive wife who is just I don't know if she has a name. Is Mrs. Koi? I think <laughs> it just she's yeah, she is. There. Uh, she is just. Just um, known as Mrs. Coy. Yeah, and she kind of ends up playing a bigger part than you might think she does. Um, we have Sushi Boy, who <laughs> it works as, I think his name's really like Loy or something like that. But he's this like really kind of sweet, innocent guy that works at the sushi shop and is really hung up on roles. Um, and he plays it. He, he, they take his character in an interesting kind of direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to discuss uh, Sushi Boy um, at the moment, because while he's obviously one of the first people to be infected, um, he 
seems to retain a lot of his humanity. I mean, we have scenes of him still serving sushi to other zombies. Yeah, uh, only fingers, fingers sushi. Is that what that it was? was? I just thought it was just just uh, was just sushi, normal sushi. So no, I took a, a, a notice that this it, definitely they're severed fingers. Okay. <laughs> um, and at the the end, uh, spoiler alert, um, we see him get attacked by his fellow zombies. And they seem to prey on him like he was still alive. Which made me wonder what's going on with him. Was he like half zombie or... Because obviously he's gone through some sort of change because he's like mutating and and as with all zombie movies, it's like, oh, you look unwell. It's like, I'm thinking, really? His face is looking like it's rotting off. He's turning green and you think he looks unwell. So. Yeah, he's he's the hero zombie of this. Um because he retains enough of his memories that he retains that like crush on roles that um you know half the time she's terrified around him but like he gives her like he somehow being undead gives him the the nerve or because he's half dead and he's not nervous anymore like <laughs> to to give her a gift and it's this sweet little statuette thing that gets stomped on later and he you could see like his heartbreak looking at the broken thing and uh it was interesting to find uh a movie like where you feel bad for the zombie mm. <laughs> so and you definitely at least i did like you really feel bad for him um which was kind of nice then to have him show up at the end and be like the hero that like helps them escape and uh yeah, even though he gets yeah, it was a little strange that he got attacked, but you know, I don't know. Yeah. I have to um I have to say though, the way he's obviously given her the gift, I felt that that was a more convincing romantic angle than we got in the whole of Warm Bodies. Yes. Um that wonderful uh, film which promised so much and failed to deliver anything. Um it was kind of like uh, Twilight but with zombies if you've not seen it and basically skirts around the uh, whole issue of oh is she a necrophiliac by having him magically come back to life at the end yeah I uh yeah I didn't know what to th- <laughs> I was just like okay so that happened yeah it may <laughs> seem like a small spoiler alert there but uh no I've actually just saved you an hour and a half of your life so you can go watch something half decent instead so Rob Corddry was funny at least I always enjoy him <laughs> But, um, yeah, this was definitely more more convincing, and, um, you know, yeah, you feel, uh, you know, they don't, clearly don't get together, because even in life, Rolls didn't really want anything to do with him, just was using him for free food and stuff, but, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, because, oh, that's one of the things that, like, mo- almost all the characters in here are, are, are kind of shitty, <laughs> which I kind of, in a, in a strange way, kind of liked, that they're all kind of jerky a little the morally conflicted is, is the only way you can uh you can describe because yeah you you're right there's no one who's sort of the honorable i think the only honorable person here is mrs uh Kwai. And, um, and sushi boy is is quite honorable but yes, you know i mean yeah sushi boy is but the thing with sushi boy is he's such a trodden spi- down pats uh yeah, yeah pats he's a patsy or... he's just so spineless and he you know but, and he knows it. But. I mean, the fact we look at Woody and Crazy, uh, Crazy B, the the DVD, the DVD bootleggers, um, who are basically 
when they're not trying to slack off or basically trying to do this whole tough guy persona and make the Steve seem sort of tough. Uh, Kwai is obviously running his own sort of dirty schemes. Um, and obviously we've got Jelly and Rolls who are basically using their attractiveness to scam free food and gifts off uh, unsuspecting young men. Yep. Um, I do like, but yeah, I like how their, their kind of inherent shadiness intersects. There's this great moment halfway through the film where Kwai and, and Woody, because Woody is definitely the alpha of Woody and B, and I definitely want to talk about them some more too. Um, Koi and Woody really get into it, and finally he's like, and Koi's like, I'm gonna call in my guys. I've got hundreds of guys that have come here, and they're gonna straighten you out. And he's like, Fine, call them. So he makes a call to some guy, like, send some guys in. And then, and then Woody's phone rings, and he's like, Oh, we need you to go to this place and rough up some guy for Koi. <laughs> he's like, Yeah, I'll, I'll be right there. So, um, that was a nice kind of circular small worldness to it all. Um, but uh, let's talk about Woody and B. I had I had forgotten this because I had watched this movie years and years ago was the first time I saw it. Rather randomly, I kind of stumbled on it. It was one of the this is before I even had your face when I had my own website and I had I'd covered this. And something I had forgotten is that Woody and B mug rolls in the first, like, 40 minutes of the film. Yeah, they, um... And, and it's a real awkward mugging as well, because they basically put a bucket over her head. This is their great plan. Yes. They, uh, they catch her coming out of the bathroom, throw a bucket over her head, steal her wallet, and then, like, steal her rings, like, they get a bunch of soap, and it's played for laughs and stuff. <laughs> you know, they're trying yeah, to get cause... hands reaching over to get hand soap from the sink, the soap up her hands so they could get the rings off. But it's a very weird. You kind of think like, oh, these guys really are assholes. <laughs> like, you know, because they just wanted some extra money. You know, All right. um, and they do they do get re- they are They kind of redeem themselves later on. They have that moment where um you know, they start feeling a bit bad about it, and then, like, Woody kind of gets caught with the ring, and, and you can tell he just feels awful. And mm. uh, But I thought it was kind of... I kind of... I thought it was really nervy to let them be that shitty. You know, because, like, going back to Mallrats, like, Brody is, is kind of a shitheel, but he would never have done... You couldn't conceive of him doing anything like that. Like, that's that's way too over the line for him but you know not a problem for these two so when I'm watching these two I don't know how whether you agree with this comparison or not I couldn't help but think of uh, the two main characters in Shaun of the Dead and the scene which really sort of drove it home for me is um, at the end where I believe it's crazy gets gets bitten and he's in the elevator and his, his friend like looks over at him and You've got that same sort of uh, connection that you have at the end of Shaun of the Dead where, again, he's uh, sort of dying there and he's like, no, go on, go on. And he forces his friend to uh, go on. And I kind of saw them as sort of like a more uh, criminally minded version of uh, the characters we obviously see in uh, in Shaun of the, the main characters in Shaun of the Dead there. I don't know what you're, whether you saw the same thing or not. You would you would have to preface it with a more criminally mind version of it. Um 
because they definitely are, and that's that's one of the things that I think really makes this movie for me is the relationship between the two of them. Like they work so well off each other and together. Um, and then it's it's actually really mo- moving. It, like I was actually like, oh, this is really sucks that they you know B got killed in a way where most most zombie movies I really don't care who lives and dies because they're all zombie chow in my mind. But you know you're really gutted for them when um, when B gets bitten, um, and they and they really kind of stop and and allow that impact to to actually take place. So um, yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah, I thought that was a I thought that was a great scene. Mm. Um, I mean, the other scene I love is uh, where he's just carrying around the computer monitor. Yeah. <laughs> Where they escape from the uh, police custody and he's just running around with this computer monitor and you're thinking, why are you carrying it around? It's not like you're handcuffed to the computer monitor. We saw you handcuffed to the desk, but not to the monitor. So why yeah. are you still carrying it? Yeah, there's there's lots of randomness in this movie like that, which which I was very okay with. Mm. I just yeah. saw it and I'm like, okay, how long till he whips that at someone's head? <laughs> but uh, And the other scene, I love the scene where he goes to use the gun and it flashes up empty. Little computer graphics. Oh, the, yeah. There was a whole scene of that, like in like the phones, like the the radio's dead, like batteries dead, and the, the guns empty, and there was something else he tries, and it's just not working. You yeah. Know. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's an interesting little touches. I mean, I didn't because of obviously the how the film chooses to to pace things. I I mean, I certainly found it amusing. Um, I think going into it, obviously expecting this big sort of zombie movie, it was kind of disappointing, obviously, the fact that we spent the first hour getting sort of like a comedy crime thriller of sorts, and then it sort of goes into its this final half hour as more of a sort of standard zombie movie. So it was kind of a little disappointing, uh, obviously, watching it for the first time, and obviously sitting here and discussing with you this evening, it's changing it like in my mind and it's sort of like putting all the pieces in place and like making it more of a more of an enjoyable experience than I probably had when I was watching it but it was certainly a, if I certainly if I was giving it a rating I would say it's certainly a solid three and a half star rating here so and I would I would agree with that um and I could see how if you went into it expecting a more standard action fueled zombie movie yeah it's going to be disappointing but um pacing and structure wise it's not and that's that's actually there's a reason why i I thought this would be a good match with mall rats is because it reminds me more of mall rats than it does most other zombie movies you know (laughs) just the kind of the vibe of it that it's it's very kind of loose and very kind of a little bit arbitrary with some of the zombie rules and um you know, uh, it has this. It does have this video game kind of vibe and influence that shows up periodically. That um, you know, the way that Mallrats has its like comic book influences. Um, so, yeah, I think that's. I think that's a fair assessment of it. It's um, yeah. If you go in expecting like an adrenaline rush thrill ride, then yeah, that's. But there's enough going on. There's a nice energy to it. Um, and it's got a great ending, I thought. Okay. I don't know if we I don't know if we want to go there or, or um, not. But, uh, I would say that we. 
Yeah, it, it, the ending I didn't get. Um, I, I sort of like saw the when I when I was looking at the ending there, and it was sort of like I didn't understand the character's motivation for doing what doing what they did. I understand why one of the characters may have obviously done uh, what they do, but I didn't. As I said, I didn't understand why um, why obviously uh, the other character chose to do what what they did. So well, let's. I uh, I tell you what. Right here, you can edit in some kind of sirens, like big spoilers. There and then go. you can decide, <laughs> you know, wah, 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 big spoilers coming up, and then you can decide if you want to cut this out of the show or not. Okay. Um, or people listening, you can just skip ahead to, um, you know, like three minutes later or something, and then we'll, we should be done. Um, do you think that's that's good? That's enough cover? Yeah, should I, I think <laughs> made it five minutes. Okay. So. Yeah, it's uh, only Woody and Rolls make it out of the out of the mall, and they um, in the car in a car, and they of course they don't they don't like close the mall door behind them, you know the mall thing that the mall garage behind them or anything, and they they show up at a gas station and it's an abandoned gas station everything's locked up, and um, Woody is at the the thing trying to like kind of find a phone or whatever and he sees there's a tv on there's an announcement that there's a zombie outbreak and whatever you do don't you know you want to avoid all soft drinks and stuff and he looks over at the car and rolls is drinking out of the uh the tainted soda and so he comes back and he's i think he's thinking about having to kill her after everything they've been through together and they've got a thing going and he instead takes the the soda and has a drink of it himself, which I kind of saw him as like, is he kind of giving up? Like he's resigned himself to the fact that they can't get out of this, you know, just because they escaped the mall, they can't escape the zombie plague, and he's lost his best friend, and he's just lost his girl he's into, and he's, yeah. you know, um. Which is a pretty downbeat ending, but I kind of liked that they, you know, and zombie movies are known for having their downbeat endings, really. Um, but it's... I thought that was a different, a different way to do it, as opposed to just like, oh, we've gotten out of this place, and there's still more zombies, you know. Yeah, and so I mean, again, this is something that no, you obviously explained it where you're saying that. Obviously, he's faced with this prospect of having to kill Rolls, um, and instead he uh, he opts for a life of ignorance, so to speak. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of like um, like the ending of Shutter Island in a way. Do you like uh, live as a monster, or do you do you like take the treatment and uh, live the live a life uh, live the life of the lie, really? So. But no, thank you for uh, certainly spinning that one around because I was unsure about the ending. I saw it and I was like, just, this makes no sense. Um, and obviously, as you would like like breaking it down there, it's like, now I get it. So. Yes. Oh, well, I'm glad I could help. Um, Should we put the sirens back in? <laughs> Spoilers, are, we're back. Um. Yeah, um, any other sort of points in this one uh, that you want to bring up? No, I think this is... Um, I really enjoy this film. 
you know, this is one of those films that, uh, and, and part of what I love about diving into these really kind of obscure, kind of off the beaten track kind of cult films is, is discovering something that you're like, you'd never heard of and didn't know what to expect. And you're like, Oh, this was different and cool. And, um, and that's, I think ultimately why I, I really enjoy kind of, uh, these obscure movies or bad movies and stuff is that every now and then you stumble on something that you're like, Oh, that was actually pretty fantastic. So, I mean, certainly the Asian zombie movie genre on its own is a fascinating one to to look at, and certainly one that um, we'll be able to give a few more recommendations for when we get onto our further viewings. Um, I mean, as I said, was there was there anything else that we, you feel we haven't covered on this one? I feel it's a film that has feels like you get a lot thrown at you, but uh, ultimately, ultimately is uh, it's quite short, and it uh, kind of keeps all these ideas kind of concise really so yeah i mean it is it is in a lot of ways a very simple film <laughs> you know i mean it's so i think we've uh, i think we hit all the the highlights so i think we're good um for viewing this is the part where i'm excited to see what, what you can recommend to go with this one um i would i you know i paired this with mall rats for a reason so i would go with mall rats um if you want to go more of a make it a zombie night, then you could always, always, always go with the greatest film of the 21st century, Shaun of the Dead. Um, still love that movie. Okay. Um, for myself, uh, if you're going to do more zombie films, uh, if you want to go for something a little more, a little more Western, uh, then Brain Dead or Dead Alive uh, would be my ultimate zombie movie. It features a zombie baby, um, a unique use for a petrol-driven lawnmower. Um, there's a rat monkey in it, a mutant mother from hell. Uh, there's lots of good stuff in there. If you're wanting to still just look at more Asian uh, horror movies, then certainly there are a number of great films out there, and a lot more seem to be making it over, especially on some of the more indie labels that are sort of doing them in like free disc sets and stuff. So you might want to look at things like Junk, um, and one would be uh, One Chambara, Samurai Bikini Squad, or again, another completely random one would be Attack Girls Swim, De- Swim Team versus The Undead. Um, there's plenty out there, and even if there's films such as like Versus or Battlefield Baseball, which again managed to incorporate zombies within their plot, and there is something about the way that the Asian cinema chooses to portray zombies, which is unlike anything that we've seen with like Western cinema or maybe even the Italian gut munchers, such as like Zombie or uh, Nightmare City. Uh, they have the very unique way of doing zombie movies, and even if you are a seasoned zombie veteran, there's still something there to enjoy. There's plenty of unique takes to uh, find, even if uh, some of them may be some of the more random viewing choices you will have. I had completely forgotten about Versus. That movie's out of control. I gotta go check that out again. <laughs> yeah, um, directed by Ryu Kitamara, Versus is, again, it, as you said, it is out of control. Um, yes. Here is where we have a director who makes films just based on the principle of he hasn't seen a film with these things in. So here he wanted to do a Yakuza zombie movie. And uh, 
yeah, that's what he does. It's uh, it's up there with Wild Zero is probably one of my favorite just balls of all randomness. Um, if I want to like just completely blow someone's mind, then I show them verses. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, it's um, as I said, it's the Asian Asian cinema, especially just some of the the more sort of trashier titles are there are often worth checking out. And uh, while it's nice to obviously look at some of the more art house stuff, you know, um, out there and obviously the more well known known titles, it is occasionally nice to wander off the uh, beaten path and. Especially with, uh, as I said, a lot of the more of these indie labels sort of filtering some of the more obscure and random titles across that aren't basically just about anime tentacle porn or splatter such as like like Tetsuo the Iron Man or Tokyo Gore Police or the Meatball Machine. There are those films which fall sort of in that that middle ground. Uh, there's there's still plenty to to enjoy there. Very cool. Cool. Um, and that uh, brings us to the end of uh, tonight's show. Um, I'd like to again to thank uh, Nolan for coming and joining us and discussing uh, both Morvats and um, BioZombie this evening. Oh, thank you for having me on. This was this was great. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, get you back on to discuss another couple of movies soon. Sure, there is there is plenty of awesome films on the list to choose from, so it, it won't be hard to to pick out another uh, another nice pairing to That's do. Cool. So. Um, obviously, before we go, uh, if you do want to uh, to find you, find you on the uh, old internet, where's the uh, best places to find you again? The best place to find my writing is at Your Face, which you can find at www.yourfaceisa.com, or you can listen to my smooth, silky tones on The Layer of the Unwanted, which is available on iTunes and Podomatic and you know uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold though it's a free show so you don't have to buy it <laughs> um and if you got anything coming up on the site at the moment uh, you know it, it just i'm just kind of motoring through um through my my paces at the site uh just attempted to do a bunch of ta- of patriotic films for the fourth of july here stateside and uh and it went horribly horribly wrong i gotta say um <laughs> I won't go too deep, but I uh, there was a Steven Seagal movie called The Patriot, Ooh. and I'm like, yes, it's Steven Seagal not reacting to things and just The Patriot, and this will be perfectly patriotic for the Fourth of July, and it's a stale fart of a film. <laughs> it was his attempt. What I discovered the hard way is it was like his attempt to do just a straight up drama, mm. and there's like. In this like ninety something minute movie, there is, in all seriousness, maybe like two minutes worth of him fighting. Yeah, it's also like one of those the two movies he did where he went for that period where he decided he wanted to become a Native American. Yeah, he has he has a bunch of those, and and him being sanctimonious about things is is one <laughs> of one of my own sadistic pleasures. Is you know watching this guy who you know makes his money out of mercilessly beating and brutalizing people that even in the scenes and in the context, most of the time they don't need it or deserve it, (laughs) but then have him turn around and be like, I'm very spiritual and I am a man of peace. It's like bullshit. You are none of those things, you know? Um, 
so I tried to so I watched that and I covered that. Um, I had fun tearing it apart at least. And then uh, I tried to course correct by watching the 1990 version of Captain America, which oof. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if this is the Red Brown one or the one where Red Skull gets plastic surgery because they didn't couldn't afford the effects. Um, it's it's the one I don't know who's acting in it. Um, as far as like the leads, but like Ronnie Cox is the president of the United States, and it's the one where at least two or three times in the film. Uh, Captain America feigns car sickness so he can steal the car from whoever's giving him a ride. <laughs> and they repeat it like it's not it's bad enough they do it once, but they repeat it a couple times. And every time the person's driving who's there to help him is like, really, Captain America's car sick? He's like, yeah, I'm going to throw up. you got to pull over. And so they pull over, and he pretends the wretch, and they come out to check on him. And then he does a Chinese fire drill around to the driver's side and drives off. Nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's one of these films where uh, I think it was the same kind of production company that did the uh, Roger Corman version of the Fantastic Four. So, like, every fight scene is at night with no lighting. So you're just watching, like, ten minutes of, like, darkness and shadows and exciting music. Yeah, this is uh, this is in fact the the one where the Red Skull, as as I said, has plastic surgery, so he looks normal. Um, it's also directed by Albert Perrin, the legend of uh, director VHS uh, movies, who gave us not only the Nemesis films but also gave us Cyborg, which was shot on the same sets that they used for Masters of the Universe. Nice. Um, but yeah, it also features Captain America decapitating a woman with his shield. Now, why don't I remember that part? Because you don't see a head fly off. He basically, the shield comes back, and he's like, heads up, and it looks like it hits her in the face, but uh, according to Wikipedia, it does decapitate her. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's a little sliver of what I've just been, been going through. So, uh, good stuff. Cool. Um, if you do want to obviously uh, know more about... Uh, the career path of Steven Seagal, though, I would recommend checking out Seagalology by The Vern. Not The Vern of uh, The Vern's Video Vortex, but the other Vern. Um, as uh, that's certainly a good companion piece for perhaps your more tortured viewing of the latest Steven Seagal movies. <laughs> but the fact the man has sat down and wrote a whole book about the career path of Steven Seagal is something that uh, I don't know if that was the word to, to describe it, really. Um, it is a loopy path. It is book-worthy. I yeah. think that's... Uh, yeah. But, um, again, thank you, Nolan, for obviously coming on and uh, discussing the films and sharing your thoughts on uh, Coulton Obscure Cinemas this evening. Well, thank you. It was great to be here. Cool. Um, and that brings us to the end of another show. This is uh, Elwood Jones, always, signing off another edition of the Mad, Bad and Damage Strange Showcase, reminding you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>